You're listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 7th of March 2023 on Monocle 24. Ukraine vows to continue defending a town which barely still exists. The UK's government remains curiously determined to do anything about migrant boats except that which might actually work. And would your workplace be enhanced by an AI-generated soundtrack? Clue? No. I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests, Marie Leconte and Steve Kinane, will discuss all the day's big stories and we'll hear from the authors of a new book detailing their hunt for Pegasus, the spyware which might well know that you're listening to this. Stay tuned, all that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller, and I'm joined today by Marie Leconte, the political journalist and author, and by Steve Kinane, Europe Bureau Chief for the ABC, as in the Australian Broadcasting Commission, not that uh, it's corporation now. Actually, it's been yeah, corporation for ages. Yeah, I know. Sorry, I was bound to catch up. I was doing a whole thing in to say not those American pretenders who stole our national broadcaster's <laughs> name. Um, Murray, you are outnumbered by Australians this evening. Apologies in advance. I know. I'm not looking forward to it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you and all our listeners. Um, But uh, in the light introductory banter section of the show, uh, we should... Uh, Mari, once again, I'm enjoying this. It's becoming a running gag. Come on, you, you have it's not completely abstruse. There is a paperback of your fine new book coming out soon ish. Uh, there is. I think listeners should know that I just put my head in my hands as he began this. <laughs> um, but yes, no, the paperback of my book, Escape How a Generation Shaped, Destroyed, and Survived the Internet, uh, will be out in August in Britain and in other countries if anyone would like to buy the rights to publish it in other countries. <laughs> Have you ever been translated into other languages? Uh, I have not, which I'm quite annoyed no, about. But then I mostly write about British politics. Yeah, so. none, none of my books have been either, and I'm, I'm still upset about it. There was, bizarrely, once a glimmer of interest from a Bulgarian publisher, hmm. which would have made me happy beyond my powers I to mean, describe it being translated into Bulgarian. That actually became, sounds like one of your mates pranking you. Uh, it, it, it might well have been, Steve. It might well have been. Uh, do you have anything, Steve, that you would like to flog while oh, you're sitting Oh, not really. Here? I put a book out in 2017 and I'm still being sued about it. So that's, there you go. <laughs> <laughs> you're that, that is, that, That's quite swish, actually. Are, are you allowed to utter the name of it on air? Uh, it's, the, it's called Fair Game, the Incredible Untold Story of Scientology. And, and you discovered that the Church of Scientology, contrary to everything we expected of them, are somewhat thin-skinned and litigious. Well, yes, but weirdly, someone else is suing me, but ne- let's not go there. Uh, let's do the show on this. Let's perhaps not. Um, we will start uh, with Bakhmut, which a bit over a year ago was a town of about 70,000 people in the Donetsk Oblast of Ukraine. It is now more or less a ruin. Russian forces and Wagner mercenaries have been trying to take Bakhmut for months, Ukrainian troops defending it just as doggedly, both arguably past the point at which there is anything much left worth fighting over. Nevertheless, Ukraine's president, Volodymyr Zelensky, has reaffirmed that the fight to hold what remains of Bakhmut will continue. Um, Steve, first of all, US Secretary of Defence Lloyd Austin uh, this week has been among many people uh, suggesting that this fight, this particular fight within the context of Ukraine's war, has become rather more symbolic than strategic. 
It's hard to know what the thinking is here. Um, Zelensky came out overnight and said that he'd been talking to his top generals and unanimously they said, don't retreat right now, in fact, reinforce. Now, I think it's possible that there's a bluff going on Mm. here and that there's a strategic fighting withdrawal going on and Zelensky wants the Russians to think they're actually reinforcing. I think that it's also possible that they think that they can continue to deplete Russian resources, both manpower and ammunition, by continuing to fight. And we saw some figures come out in the last week where um, senior Ukrainian officials said that for each uh, soldier they were losing in Bakhmut, the Russians were losing seven. And CNN reported that they had spoken to a NATO source who said that figure was five to one. So perhaps they feel like it's still worth it to try and hang on uh, to Bakhmut or continue to fight for Bakhmut. I think the other possibility is that perhaps um, Zelensky is not listening to his generals for once. And mm. and for the most part of this war, Putin hasn't listened to his generals and Zelensky has, and that has been a massive advantage to Ukraine. But it has been a very symbolic battle. It's been going since May. Mm. And, and Zelensky has referred to it as Fortress Bakhmut, and we keep hearing that term Bakhmut holds still. So it has become a very symbolic uh, city, even though it's not strategic of much worth in, in, in this fight. I I doubt that it's purely political and Zelensky just wants to hold it for symbolic reasons. I feel like his generals are probably advising him. And certainly last time I was in Ukraine, I spoke, spoke to Sohee Haidai, who was the head of the Luhansk military administration. And he says, we don't operate like this. We just don't burn our troops off. We do what we act in the best interests of our troops and our country. And whereas that is obviously not true when it comes to Russia, they have been throwing people into the meat grinder there. This is the Russian way of war for time immemorial, though. It has been. And I spoke to a uh, lieutenant um, in the special forces whose unit was fighting in Bakhmut a few weeks ago, and he described it as almost like a suicide mission where Russian troops were coming over the top, some even without guns, just with grenades and throwing and throwing them into you know the the Ukrainian lines. So uh, look, I think it's most likely that it's either the bluff and the withdrawal is going on, or they consider it is still worth it to hold on. And bear in mind, last year there was all these arguments about what is Ukraine doing with Severodonetsk and Lysychansk, mm. and there was a withdrawal going on in those regions. And it was seen as a big deal that Russia took those places. What did we see after that? We saw the Kharkiv counteroffensive, where in a month, the Ukrainians took 10,000 square kilometres back off Russia. So perhaps Ukraine believes that they can continue to deplete Russian uh, forces here, and that will help with their proposed spring counteroffensive. Murray, do you see, though, in the rhetoric around Bakhmut something that fits in with Ukraine's comm strategy over the last year or so? Because they, they are constructing a narrative, and it's easy, always easy to construct a narrative when it's rooted in truth of, you know, obdurate, dogged defiance of a much bigger country. But is it important to that message that they are not seen to be retreating, even if they are basically fighting over rubble at this point? No, absolutely. And I think um, so the first year anniversary was really recently of that video that Zelensky shot, I think, Mm. in Kiev saying, you know, middle of the night is saying we're here, we're staying here at a point as well. when I think everyone in the West and everyone everywhere, to be honest, thought that he was probably going to run away and that was it for Ukraine. So I think that that was such a big statement and I think moment as well for the beginning of the war for him to say we're here, we're not going anywhere. So I I do absolutely agree. I think that there's quite a straight line between that moment and actually saying we're not we're not leaving back, but we're not leaving. 
leaving anything behind. Um, you know, whether there's anything else going on behind that, um, I completely agree that we don't really know and we can't probably know quite yet. But symbolically, certainly in terms of, yeah, and then the comms and the narrative, uh, it certainly feels both quite powerful and also in line with what they've been doing so far. Uh, Steve, is there also the possibility that Ukraine is just desperately keen to hold what it has in anticipation of things like new tanks, new missile systems, all this kit they've been promised in the last month? It could be. They're definitely waiting for that. But the tanks are arriving already and this they are waiting for the equipment until they launch the counteroffensive and then they will be ready. Um, but it's not like they can't retreat from Bakhmut and regroup and, and you know, have the, the battlefront a little bit back from Bakhmut. They could still delay um, by retreating and have enough time to get the equipment. So I think it must be either that it's a feint or they think that they can still deplete Russia to such a degree. And bear in mind, we saw that vision of Prigozhin, didn't we, saying, you know, we're running out of ammunition. And who knows what game he's playing by saying that, but perhaps that's right as well. Um, but also I wonder, because I feel like there's been quite a bit of infighting on the Russian side, exactly over like what's going in Bakhmut, is the lack of ammunition, you know, are they, like, is there something else going on there? They're being sabotaged internally in some way. So actually, if you're the Ukrainian right now, why not let them fight? Because clearly, I think it is a sore point at the moment between the Wagner group, between the Russian troops, etc. So why not kind of, not quite sit back, obviously, but keep that going, because that is creating a lot of tensions inside the Russian side. Well, let's take a look at the UK, where the government is having yet another go at looking like it's doing something decisive vis-a-vis the unceasing flotillas of migrant dinghies taking their chances with the English Channel and British hospitality. It can be acknowledged that there is an actual problem. In 2018, maybe 300 people splashed ashore on UK beaches in this fashion. Last year, it was more than 45,000. Home Secretary Suella Braverman brandishing the new illegal migration bill, that's the name of it, not a pejorative description, has declared that her plans are robust and novel. Adjectives more usually deployed in the context of British politics as euphemisms for insane and unworkable. Um, Murray, the people running this country have been banging on for 13 years, most vociferously over the last seven, about controlling Britain's borders. They have successive mandates and a Brexit referendum encouraging them to do exactly that. Um, Are they just not very good at this? Well, I think, I mean, it, it is absolutely maddening from at least my perspective having to cover this. Well, I had to write a column on Monday on the small boats um, and considered calling in sick because there was nothing else to say. There was, you know, everyone's written everything <laughs> there is to say on the topic. So I think the problem um, is, is that they're refusing to see the reality of Britain is an island that is very close to Europe and that is English speaking. So A, that means that actually some refugees will want to come here. B, it means that the channel is narrow enough that refugees can just about take a boat and have a chance of reaching the tro- the shore. Um, so yes, so, so un- unless they accept that and decide to actually find safe routes and build, for example, I, th- I believe that France actually would agree to set up uh, refugee centres or like uh, processing centres on their coast so people can do that and then come to the country. But they just do not want to do that for whatever reason. They've decided that we just have to stop, you know, to kind of magic those refugees and asylum seekers out of existence. And and that's that, which, again, I feel like I'm boring even myself talking about it. <laughs> but but that's fundamentally it. They are refusing to see the really basic reality because they think it's a sort of, you know, charity sector, socialist uh, talking point to say, 
you just need to make people come in a way that is legal and safe. Uh, so, yeah, so they're just going to continue doing this. And the new thing, the new bill, will not work. We know everyone who knows anything about this has already said it will not work. So, again, maddening. Uh, Steve, Rishi Sunak, the Prime Minister, spoke earlier on a lectern emblazoned with the slogan Stop the Boats, which for Australians such as ourselves does seem dimly familiar. Um, Is this the UK government, and they've floated this before, this idea of trying to appropriate the Australian solution, but they're trying to adapt an Australian solution to Britain's geography, and they're not the same things. That's right. That term is definitely trademarked by Tony Abbott, former Liberal or, you would say, Conservative leader in uh, Australia. He did it from opposition, though. Mm. Rishi Sunak spoke today in front of a lectern that said stop the boats as part of a government that had been in power for 13 years. I think that's a bit different. (laughs) Uh, Secondly, a very different situation. I mean, the channel is quite short. And we've got little rubber dinghies going between France and Britain. In Australia, they were basically commandeering uh, Indonesian fishing boats, fishing trawlers, and using them uh, to get over quite a long and treacherous uh, Mm. part of sea to get there. I think another key factor is in Australia, not only did they have offshore processing, they'd lined up a country or two countries, Nauru and PNG, to, to take those people. And at the moment, when... Um, Suella Braverman says we're going to deport people. Well, where are they going to deport them to? We don't know that yet because the Rwanda um, solution is before the courts. They, they have, in fairness, succeeded in deporting quite a lot of money to Rwanda. Yes, <laughs> that is true. That is true. So, And also, under the UN Refugee um, Convention, you have this policy of non-refoulement, which means you cannot send uh, a refugee back to the country where they've been persecuted. Uh, so there's a big question mark over where they're going to deport them to. Now, in Australia, in that situation, they had offshore processing and they had deals lined up with countries. They also had a policy called uh, boat turnbacks, where they were able to turn them back into Indonesian waters. And that was done, I think, with some kind of agreement with the Indonesians. Now, that is not a policy that Britain is is got at the moment. So it worked in Australia in stopping the boats uh, coming, um, but it was not just this policy, it also involved boat turnbacks. Um, so two quick things here. The first one is, again, this may be me losing my mind, but <laughs> I'm almost certain that when Preeti Patel was Home Secretary, she did try to look into some sort of giant wave machine to put on the channel so that ships could not could not reach uh, the British shore. So everything's going tremendously. But the second thing as well, I think, fun story for you Australians. Uh, I was actually, Tony Abbott in 2016 gave a speech to many, many Tory MPs and ministers in which he talked about turning around the boats. Uh, so I wonder if that was maybe moment zero for that whole craze because they'd not been talking about it before. So I think he came to Britain, gave that speech, um, and we are where we are today. And certainly we've had many Australian practitioners of the dark arts coming over and working in politics behind the scenes. So there's no doubt that this has been appropriated from um, conservative politics in Australia. And this is a political issue. You've got a government of Brexiteers who said they were controlling, going to take back control of the borders. But they didn't even manage to do that at the height of a pandemic when there was a good reason for doing that. No. So they've got to be able to find a way to do it. Um, And... It's, but it's also a humanitarian issue because you do not want people getting on small boats in the channel. Indeed it is not. highly risky and they, and they are at the whim of people who lie to them and sell them a lie about when it's safe to go. And, you know, we know previously from, you know, stories that sometimes they give them life jackets that don't work. You know, that's an awful a bunch of people involved in, in people smuggling. So it's a humanitarian issue as well. And Marie's point of uh, before about safe passage, I mean, Rishi Sunak said this policy is fair. Well, if it was fair, you would set up places where people could actually seek 
uh, um, asylum. You wouldn't have a backlog of asylum claims that goes on for as long as it does. I mean, think of how many people who were working for the British military in Afghanistan who could not find a way to seek asylum in this country. Indeed so. That would be fair if you could have a system in place that looked after those people. Uh, Murray, just a, a final thought on this story. What's your view of why this is such a source of public angst? Is it the migrants themselves or is it the appearance that there's no order, that there's no system, that it is just a free-for-all? Because measured against the 45,000 people who arrived via this means in the last year, in the last two years. Uh, Upwards of 144,000 people have come to the UK from Hong Kong and nobody cares. It's it's not even an issue at all, even on the swivel-eyed, foaming-at-the-mouth, dingbat fringes of the xenophobic right. Uh, oh, God. I think there's a lot of different things in there. The first one is that, and that has been studied a lot academically and is really interesting. So people tend to only care about immigration and kind of, I guess, refugee crises, etc., uh, when they feel that public services are not working. So when the quality mm. of life is down, concern about immigration is up. So everyone who knows or has been anywhere near Britain in the past few years will know that nothing is working here. So I think that would be one big thing. I think the second is, yeah, as you said, control, because since 2016, that has been the big thing, control of our borders, control of who comes here. And the problem is, if you offer that to people time and time again, then don't deliver. It is not entirely unreasonable for those people to say, well, we voted for you time and time again on that one specific thing that you said you could deliver on. Why have you not delivered? And I think the third one is that in some specific areas, especially at the moment, due to the backlog we were talking about, there are lots of refugees in hotels and in, you know, kind of city centres and in places where they shouldn't really be, but like, you know, for anyone because uh, it, it's not appropriate. And and that's kind of fueling, I think, local rage. From local rage, you get national newspaper stories and then the kind of cycle continues. Um, so I think, yes, yeah, it's, it's a mix of different things. None well, of them good. to France now, where there are strikes and protests. And yes, later in the show, to the Vatican, where there is Catholicism. However, today's protests are remarkably rowdy and hefty, even by French standards and are the latest expression of discontent with President Emmanuel Macron's ambitions of raising France's pension age from 62 to 64. Raising it, that is, to what would still be among the lowest in the European Union. By way of comparison, Spain is in the process of raising the pension age to 67, Germany to 69. Um, The strikes, first of all, Mari, how big a deal are they? Uh, They've been really big. So I think today there was um, seven... uh 750,000 uh, people in Paris. Am I... Sorry, I got confused with my numbers. Yeah, that sounds like a lot. Three quarters of a million. <laughs> sorry, I, I don't know why weirdly numbers in English sometimes I get confused. But, you know, so I think in terms of sheer numbers in Paris, but everywhere in France as well. So there's lots of stories in the papers today of even sort of, you know, villages had their own tiny little march. Um, <laughs> so, so I think, you know, geographically there's been a lot. Um, and, and also I think is the fact that it is going on and on and on and on. Um and it's an issue that's been running for several months now. So it's not it's not a case of, you know, France has suddenly erupted over this. That's been bubbling over for quite a long time. Just to, there's, there's a lot here to discuss, but France has been through this before, as recently as 2010, when the pension age was raised from a frankly hilarious 60 uh, to 62 by President Nicolas Sarkozy, or at least on President Sarkozy's watch. How did he do it? Did that occasion enormous uproar as well at the time? Uh, I have to be entirely honest and say that I was the deadly combination at the time of no longer in France and also still a teenager. Um, (laughs) So I have to say that the amount of news I consumed around then was not massive. But I would say, you know, almost certainly, sue me if I'm wrong, that, you know, there will have been some protests then. But ultimately, I think it is easier for people who are obviously on the right to just hold fast and say, actually, you know, we're just going to pass this through and there's nothing you can do. And Macron 
bless him, because I think he is kind of still trying to govern as a centrist. His prime minister, Elisabeth Borne, uh, is nominally sort of left of centre, so that it's always going to be a bit tougher as François Hollande saw when I believe he also tried to uh, pass some reforms on this and that and the other. Uh, Steve, Australia, the pension age is 67, so yes. we're already expected... And Italy as well. Indeed so. <laughs> we are we are already expected to put in a, a five-year longer shift uh, than the French do. It, it is any argument of this sort against raising the pension age at this stage of the human experiment somewhat self-indulgent? I mean, 62 is quite early. Yeah, and not to mention, you know, the French do have a 35-hour week and very long lunches, so you could really probably increase it to about 80 in France and it'd still be legitimate. But, um, I, look, I think it's, I think it's a bit... I don't understand why young people are protesting on the streets today. If they don't raise the pension age in France to, to 64, those people in their 20s are going to be, have to pay for these pensions in their tax increases in the next 30 years. I, it, it, it's, I saw a figure of something like 17.7 billion euros. There's a deficit on the pensions here in France at the moment. They've got to do something to fund those. You've got too, not enough people of working age and too many people of retirement age. And the French do have a pretty good um, life expectancy. So they have to do something to pay for their pensions if they want to... And look, I... I do think there's an argument that's often not raised in these issues when you talk about uh, pension ages. Is It's very different for blue-collar workers and white-collar workers. Absolutely if true. You, if you've worked in a factory or if you've worked on a construction site or um, a woman working in the textiles industry or a man working in that industry, your, your bodies can be broken at the age of 55 and not able a to work absolutely anymore. Absolutely true. But if you work in a newspaper, you could probably work till the age of 80. So I do think that when we have these conversations, we should talk about those things. Um, that, that is, to be honest, the main angle in France at the moment. And I think there was an incredible stat, wasn't it? Something along the lines of like between a quarter and a third of uh, blue collar workers will be dead by the point they reach retirement age, uh, which is incredibly striking. So I, I do think, you know, and I get the cliches about France and being idle and stuff, but I think that is a good point. And also quite briefly. So I think one of the new changes as well would be like the number of years you have to work. So it's not just about age, yeah. uh, which would also be really bad for women. So I can't remember all the details um, of the policy. We see a lot of the feminist organisations are striking as well, because actually women will have smaller pensions than men as a direct result of the changes. So I think, again, it's, it's not just the usual Gallic, oh God, we have yeah. to work, <laughs> sort of thing. But it is gradual as um, well. Like, these hmm. changes that Macron wants to bring in would be increasing the age from 62 to 64 incrementally up to 2030. So it's not like it's suddenly going to happen tomorrow. Um, you've, uh, if you're going to have a welfare system, you've got to find a way to, to fund it if you don't have enough workers. And it doesn't seem that unreasonable if you kind of take and consider the blue-collar workers in a different way to the white-collar workers. Well, on that thought, Murray, do do we just need to adjust to thinking about pensions in a different way? I, I, I did look this up earlier. When the UK introduced the first state pension in 1909 for 70-year-olds, and I quote, of good character, um, <laughs> uh, life... Life expectancy was 52, uh, and in yeah. France today, as Steve alludes to, it's it's now 82. The, the old age pension was introduced on the, on the assumption that basically you would drop obligingly dead by your early 60s. It wasn't ever intended to fund a 30-year-long holiday. 
Um, yes, sure. But then isn't the problem that we we are living longer, but equally I think many people are still not in great health uh, for, let's say, those 30 years in mm. which they're technically not working anymore. So I don't know. I, I'm quite utopian on that stuff. Like, why not try and find a way to make this work? Where actually, it would be quite nice for everyone to have at the very least a decade at the end of they, you know, their life where they're not just in a hospice or on the verge of death. And they can just do pleasant stuff. Uh, well, also, we need them for childcare at the moment because childcare <laughs> is unaffordable everywhere. Well, let, let's pivot from that utopian vision uh, into what may be the single worst idea in the history of human endeavour. <laughs> uh, this is the proposition that workplaces should have soundtracks, possibly even soundtracks created by AR. AI to provide, it says here, a personalised bio-soundscape. This is being floated by no less an authority than an article on a website, which today's producer Carlotta read and is making me talk about because she suspected the idea would annoy me. Flying as it does in the face of the basic law of common courtesy, which holds that anybody anywhere who in any circumstance deliberately broadcasts unnecessary noise into the earshot of anyone who does not wish to hear it, should be launched from a high cliff into a roiling sea via a trebuchet erected for that specific purpose. Steve, is there any imaginable excuse for any of this? Oh, I don't like the sound of this. Doesn't the building read your mood and then oh. tell you how you're, you're feeling and what it, you then have to ha- have it, imposed it, in your it, ears? It won't have any trouble reading my mood, I can uh, tell well, you. Well, look, the soundtrack to my workplace is Australian journalists swearing a lot, and I feel very <laughs> comforted by that. That's I, I want to be in that environment. Would, I would, don't want... Would you like an AI-generated soundtrack of Australian oh journalists swearing? <laughs> Sure, bring out, you know, guys from the 50s and women from the 60s. I'm up for that. But I don't want wind chimes or whale music. I Also, what's wrong with a bit of anxiety in the workplace? I mean, how do you how do you meet deadlines with that, without a bit of anxiety? You know, I, I, it's a motivating force. I, I genuinely believe you should be able to advance wind chimes in a defence when you are on trial for arson. <laughs> I, I, I think if, if you can demonstrate there were wind chimes on the property, I think you should get a tenor from the till, an apology from the judge for wasting your time, and a round of applause also, from the jury. if you were feeling anxious and then the, the mood music kicked in, wouldn't that make you feel more anxious? Because and you think the building is, is knows that I'm anxious? That's anxiety-inducing. Um, Ma- Mari, I, I want to read to you a phrase uh, of sorts, and then I want, I want to discuss everything that's wrong with it, though that may take us some hours. Um, the phrase, to create a new sound experience at the Charter Communications headquarters in Connecticut, for example, my team crafted pleasant generative harmonies from the digital sounds made by Charter's products and technology, always shifting and changing based on live data and brand content. I'm very upset about this. <laughs> uh, what I will say is that actually one office I do occasionally work in have a system that I, I, I think is going terribly for them, but obviously I can't say that because I'm not working there full time, but they have a, you know, a playlist they work on all together. But like you don't, crucially, you don't pick songs. You have to pick songs you think, what you get given a person, you pick songs you think the person sitting next to you oh will like. God. And the entire oh. thing is horrific. It is so bad. <laughs> and everyone hates it, but I think they're all so, you know, they're, they're, they're in too deep now, so they can't stop and they just have this horrible playlist playing all the time. But I was going to say, so I used to, because my life used to be a sitcom, uh, back in the exciting times exciting times of uh, new digital media, I worked uh, at a digital startup, which I will not name, Subbead, uh, if you can guess what that is. And it was quite funny because we actually had quite a big newsroom, which was full of exciting young hip kids uh, and about three of us working on politics. And we had quite loud music on in the office 
quite often, but which means the three of us have often had to duck out into the bathroom to take calls from like ministers and such to be like, so sorry, that last ketchup seems to be playing in the background, minister, uh, which was uh, an interesting year of my life. See, I did actually spend a portion of my youth working in the literal office of a music magazine in which no music was ever actually played on the understanding that there would be no chance of it ever being anything everybody would agree on. Because it could have led to violence, right? Uh, it, it, it really it really could have. Yeah. Um, do, do you, but, but I did want to ask you both, Murray, that was your cue, by the way, to say, Andrew, is there a book available chronicling that period in your life? And I could have said, why, yes. Yes, there is, Murray. <laughs> is there? Oh, yeah. my God. Tell us all about um, it. Yeah, it's it's been out for ages and nobody bought it. It's it's it's, it's on the internet. <laughs> um, but, but do you, and I'll ask you first, Steve, actually have voluntary uh, work soundtracks that you subject yourself to? Do you play music? Do you listen to whale song? Um, anything of that sort? Certainly not. I mean, I... <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not about to start at my age. I just, look, I like an open plan office. I like the rowdiness of mm-hmm. someone getting outraged by something that somebody said on the news channel, or I like um, an argument or a contest of ideas or even a suggestion from a colleague about what to write or say or chase down. But um, I like, so I do like the rowdiness of a newsroom and I don't, I think that is a natural soundtrack of its own that does not need distorting by these people and how dare they even think about it. I, I mean, the, the Monocle newsroom, I will say, is not rowdy as such. It tends to be just quite long conversations about crisps. <laughs> oh, really? and, and biscuits, the biscuit discourse that that that's been going for some years now. Right, and you haven't changed this, then. But uh, I mean, the the biscuit discourse works. You can sort of dip in or dip out of it. Um, Mari, do you do you like music or any sort of noise at all when working? Um, well, so I work from a cafe because my life is now a different kind of sitcom. Um, and it, I mean, I really enjoy it because it's a charming little cafe, and also the baristas are insane. Um, and so you never you never know what's going to happen. So sometimes there's like a little Italian guy who works there. Sometimes we all just have Italo pop for seven hours on end. Which drives everyone mad, like so mad. I think there was one day where we had Lou Reed's entire discography from basically beginning to nearly end. Uh, did, you, which was... did you get any work done during the Metal Machine music? Uh, <laughs> no, no. So, <laughs> the joke I was building towards Sorry. was that I, know, yeah, I spent like the last hour just like increasingly stressed, going, "Is he going to do it? Is he going to do it? Is he going to do it?" And he did not do it to my near disappointment by the end. Um, but no, so I, I, I quite enjoy. I yeah. On, on the one hand, I quite enjoy it. On the other. Does it does it help my general mental stability? I'm not convinced it does. See, I can and have um, worked in cafes. I wrote most of another book uh, in a cafe, specifically the one at the top of the Tate Modern, where if you get in there really early before anybody else turns up, they don't, or at least they didn't at the time, mind you ordering a cappuccino at 10 o'clock in the morning and making it last for seven hours. But I, I, I can't be doing... I, I, can't, I can barely even eat in cafes or restaurants where there's music playing, never mind work. So I could, I could, I could deal with a cafe and the ambient noise of a cafe but not with any kind of compulsory music that's hmm. that that that's my view that's weird you're the weird one here yeah well, I've, <laughs> that's that's been said before and doubtless will be again <laughs> um murray leconte and steve canane thank you both very much for joining us and finally on today's show it is pretty weird when you think about it that so many of us are just walking around carrying devices with which we could with a few whimsical keystrokes completely ruin our own professional and personal lives more alarmingly however it may not necessarily be our own self-destructive decision software exists which will not only 
extract everything from your phone but turn it into an audio and or video recorder. The software, and this is just the software we know about, is called Pegasus, and it is the subject of a new book, Pegasus, the story of the world's most dangerous spyware by Laurent Richard and Sandrine Rigaud. I spoke to Laurent and Sandrine earlier. I began by asking them to explain what Pegasus is and how it works. Pegasus is a spyware uh, which can infect your phone, so take the control of your phone remotely and in a very invisible way, so you're not aware of that spyware being on your phone. And once in your phone, it can extract absolutely everything you have on your phone, your contacts, your photos, your passwords, if you stock them on, on your iPhone, your, your location, everything, um, your, even your Google search, which is very personal, so all your life, can be in the hand of the people who spy on you. And those are often uh, very hostile governments who are looking for any means to silent dissidents. Um, I'll come back shortly to the programme and who built it and who can control it. But Laurent, I wanted to ask you as well about something about the story of how you ran across it, because the book, to be clear, is not at all just a a, a dry study of a particular sort of software. It, it does read rather like an espionage thriller as you follow this lead and try to find out where it goes. Um, so how did you first run across the idea of Pegasus and, and, and how did did it dawn on you what an, an enormous um, and pernicious story this was? Yeah, basically this, uh, this investigation starts with a, with a huge leak. The leak of um, 50,000 phone numbers uh, were entered into the NSO customer system. Uh, 50,000 phone numbers all over the planet, all over the world of people who might have been um, potentially targeted by this spy war precisely by, by more than 10 governments using this spyware. And so this is how we started this investigation about um, the spyware and how it was massively misused by many state actors, such as the Saudis, Azerbaijan, Mexico, Morocco, and many states who have a very bad re track record in terms of um, human rights uh, uh, violation. And so we start with that list with phone numbers. And the first step of this investigation was for us to identify the owners of those phone numbers, to understand and to identify the victims. And for the very first time, we were able to reveal who was targeted by uh, this kind of spy war all around the world. And we found out that many dissidents, many journalists, many lawyers, political uh, opponents were targeted by this spy war by many states. And they were not terrorists, they were not criminals. Officially, this spy war is, is only sold to catch terrorists and to catch criminals. And that was not the case. Sandrine, Laurent mentions their NSO, the Israeli developer who built Pegasus. What do we know for sure about them? How transparent are they about who they do business with and once they've sold Pegasus to somebody who has access to it? So NSO is an Israeli private firm that was founded by uh, two guys, Omri Lavi, Shalev Ulyo, uh, who are basically startuppers, so they, they, they're not specialists of uh, spyware, they're not tech specialists, but they are rather uh, very good commercial uh, people. And they sold that spyware with the approval of the Israeli governments to government, uh, explaining that they were probably the most ethical company selling spyware in the world. So they have a 
had on their website very clear announcement about their uh, political concerns, human political concerns. They hired specific consultant on human rights. But what we discovered through our investigation is that there was a whole word between what they were pretending to do and what they were actually doing. And they actually never really confirmed or yeah, uh, the, the list of, of clients. And we discovered through our investigation that most of the clients they had, and at least a big number of clients, were very authoritarian regimes known for not respecting, as Laurent said, uh, uh, human rights basic principles. I mean, Laurent, is there any way, if you are concerned about Pegasus or something like it, of protecting yourself from it, short of just not owning or operating a phone or a laptop or anything connected to the internet? Well, unfortunately, the only way to be sure that you will not be the next one on the list is to um, drop your, your your device and to throw your uh, your iPhone through the window. So that's the only way we, we know so far that is uh, offering you some guarantee to not be uh, um, uh, the target. That, that's where we are because in front of us, you have uh, companies with a lot of um, human resources coming from the military because we're talking about um, a military weapon used against civilians. So this is what we have to to have in mind that we're talking about um, a military weapon used against civilians, and there is nothing to protect us. There is no regulation. There is no magic mechanism for you to know if you are targeted or not. During the investigation, during the Pegasus project, with our work with Amnesty International Security Lab, we were able to find traces of infection, evidence that the Pegasus spyware was installing and running into some devices. But now it's not any more really possible to find traces uh, because NSO, since that publication, makes sure that they will be much more invisible now. So it's it's complicated, and there is so this is why it's really now up to the up to the political leaders, to uh, MPs and many and maybe companies from the Silicon Valley to to build some mechanism and some technology to to prevent such an attack that because that's global threats against democracy. Well, just finally, Sandrine, and on that thought, one of the things the book made me think about was where this might end. I mean, the book, in the story it tells about the present day is both fascinating and terrifying enough, but the trajectory we've seen before of all kinds of technology is it starts out, you know, expensive and complicated and only used by militaries and states, and then it becomes more and more democratised and accessible. Are we heading towards some sort of night nightmare dystopia where everybody can access everything on everybody else's phone? Well, actually, when the the publication came out, was released in July 2021, Edward Snowden immediately reacted saying that we had a list of 50,000 people targeted, but that that might be a list of 50 million people in a few years from now. And of course, what Pegasus was selling at the time of our investigation investigation was rather quite sophisticated and expensive and whatever, I mean, still a, a bit controlled because they needed a license um, to, to, to sell it to government. So the Israeli government knew at least who, who this uh, spyware was sold to, but it's possible that this private uh, spyware or similar spywares 
uh, could be sold to private companies or private individuals in the future. And this is what's a bit frightening with the, those kinds of technologies. I mean, there, I mean, political decisions come always behind the, the, the development of uh, such, uh, such weapons. That was Sandrine Rigaud and Laurent Richard, authors of Pegasus, the story of the world's most dangerous spyware available now. And that is it for this edition of The Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Marie Leconte and Steve Canane. Today's show was produced by Carlotta Ribello and researched by André Nikolai Pamintuan. Our sound engineer was Callum McLean. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.